church this morning, and as we begin, Pastor Paul has an announcement about missions for us. Here he comes. He's ready. He was not at all surprised by that. I never know if this is a song or a prelude, but it's the song. All right, that was the song. After the first song, I was supposed to say something to you. Good to see you. Welcome. I don't think it's officially started yet, but here's my announcement. My, I'm speaking on behalf of, of our missions committee of the Houghton Wesleyan Church and on a, behalf of a lot of wonderful folks in Puerto Rico. And that is, I want to say thank the Lord. Thank, thank you, Lord. Thanks to you. I think I have a slide coming up on that. There it is. It says thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thanks to you as a church. I know some of people very sacrificially gave so that we are sending... Uh, even as I speak, I think the checks are already in the mail. Two checks to, to Puerto Rico, over $6,800 in each check. Um, you do the math, 68 times two, $6,800. One to Wesleyan Academy, uh, the school that lost uh, nine classrooms, has 900 students. It's a kind of a sister academy to Houghton Academy, and we're sending them money to uh, in, recover from the hurricane. The other check goes to the general recovery of Puerto Rico through World Hope International. So God has been gracious to us. I think it was a record Christmas Eve offering, that one offering over $13,000. So it's, an, it's a miracle. We just want to say thank the Lord and thanks to you. And then also want to mention that uh, we're in the fourth month countdown. The end of May is the end of our faith promise goal of $33,340. Uh, last May, we took promises or pledges that God would help us to raise this money above and beyond our regular missions budget, above and beyond our regular tithes and offerings. So we again await God's provision to support several uh, Wesleyan missionaries. There are six couples, and we have a picture here first of the Austins and the Georges. Austins in Czech Republic, some of you remember Kevin and Cindy. And Josiah, and then the Georges, a family from Allegheny County who serve in near Perth, Australia. It's not too late um, to... Uh, well, let me mention the other picture. The next slide is the Rodrigos. Some of you know a Rodrigo here at Houghton College, a music student. That's his parents in Sri Lanka. And then the Teeds are in Haiti. And our own uh, Ruth and Steve Strand are up in... Buffalo with uh, urban advocacy. It's not too late 
for you as newcomers to actually join us and designate gifts for our faith promise goal, which is, uh, again, the end of May. And there are flyers on, in the foyer, the upper foyer, if you need more information. But maybe you didn't participate in the Faith Promise Pledge last May, but you can still join in and help us reach our goal. We're just about halfway there. We especially wish to focus on the sixth family of those Wesleyan missionaries that we support, and that's Romy and Linda Keringle, who will be with us here at Houghton Church in three weeks on February the 11th visiting on their way from Boston to California, where they're visiting Wesleyan churches. By the end of June, they're heading into East Asia to do medical work there. Previously, in their 35 years of ministry, they've served in Nepal, up near the Mount Everest, that country, and they've served in Zambia as uh, public health doctors and medical doctors, both of them, husband and wife. So we're especially looking forward to them. They're the face of our faith promise giving this year. And we also hope that all of us will find ways to be a part of that February 4 through 11 missions conference that we're calling Why the Great Commission is Still Great. There'll be a Saturday seminar uh, on refugees. There'll be a Wednesday night program for all ages. There'll be two Sundays of mission emphasis in February. So thank you. Again, thanks to the Lord for his generous support. Thank you. Please sit and join us as we continue in worship singing our praises to God together. <laughs> I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the land There is victory in the end Your love Love is my battle cry. The end of 
Please be seated. We have the opportunity to uh, spend a little time in prayer together. Uh, as, we, as we do that, as we pray together, sometimes uh, the, the physicality of our praying helps us. Uh, helps us express ourselves. And so this morning as we come to pray, if coming to the altar rail, kneeling there, offering your prayers is what uh, you would like to do, come join me. Father, it is a, an awesome thing to ponder that it's your breath in our lungs. You've given us life. And we want to use the breath you've given us to praise you and to honor you. To declare who you are, your greatness, your love, your compassion. We thank you, Father, for all of your gifts to us. And as we come to this time of prayer, we pour out our hearts to you. We pray for all who are grieving today. We ask that you would fill them with your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues. May they know your healing presence. We pray for relationships that are fractured And are not where we want them to be. And we ask for your restoring grace. We pray for our fears. Fear for the future. Fear about the unknown. Fear about things we cannot control. We pray for your peace. Father, we pray not only for ourselves today. We pray for the world around us. We pray for the Higgins Wesleyan Church and Pastor Bruce Smith. As they gather for worship today, may, may the worship be, uh, be clear that you're present. And you're doing amazing things, and we pray that you would bless this church. We pray, Father, for, for the world around us. Pray for our nation. Our nation is in turmoil. Our government is in turmoil, divisiveness. Father, as the leaders of our nation, the members of Congress, the president, and those and, and advisors and everyone who is at work leading our government, we pray that, that you would help each of them to come in a spirit of humility and to be able to, to work out a budget that, that would make us and would reflect us as a nation, your heart. We pray, Father, that you would help the leaders of our nation to to desire what would be best for people who are most needy and most vulnerable in our society and in our world. Father, we pray for the leaders of our nation. We pray for our leaders in Albany. We pray for our leaders closer to home in Belmont and Canadia. And may your grace and wisdom and blessing be upon each of them. This day when we join with people all over the world to celebrate the sanctity of human life, we want to thank you 
for the life you have given to every person in this world. And we ask, Father, that you will help us to value life the way you do. To care passionately about the unborn and the born. We pray, Father, that you will help us to be, to be voices, to be a presence of life and hope where there might be anything but that. Father, we continue to pray for those recovering from tragedies and disasters and think especially of Puerto Rico that we heard earlier. We pray for refugees around the world. We pray for those who, who are struggling in, in places of war. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing great opposition. And, and we think particularly of, the, of how the, the threat of persecution might well be impacted by the current policy debates in our country about refugees and immigration. We pray, Father, that you would, you would help believers all over the world and believers in difficult places to, to hold fast to their faith and to trust in you in every circumstance. And Father... Teach us through their faith. We pray for the Karen Gales as they prepare new ministry, go to a new place. May your blessing be upon them and all that they are and all that they do. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your presence with us. Let our voices, let every breath that we breathe, be a means of bringing honor and glory to you through the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning's scripture is from Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. If you're able, please stand for the reading of the gospel. Mark 9, 30 through 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, let me just mention a couple of things uh, in the bulletin. Uh, there's a, a stone soup that the, the preschool is, is uh, hosting this coming Friday. We'd love to have you involved in that. If you're able to help to bring a dessert, I know a lot of you don't have access to cooking, and that's okay. But if you can bring a dessert, help out with that, that would be appreciated. Also, let me encourage you again to pick up one of the historical books. You'll see some interesting pictures of some of, this, uh, some of us from many years back. It might be interesting to see. Um, so but before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning.
You ever have one of those experiences where you're sitting in class and uh, the teacher or professor is talking about something and you have absolutely no idea what they're talking about? I actually had a lot of those experiences. That pretty much describes a lot of my education. Um, you know, and you're sitting there and you know as you're, as you're listening to this and you, you can't figure out what they're saying, what they're trying to explain, there, there's this argument going on in your head. Do I ask a question or do I not? Right? I mean, we've all been there. Because if I don't want to be, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to ask a stupid question. I don't want people to look at me and go, really? You don't get that? Everybody gets that. Who doesn't get that? Right? We're having that argument in our head. And, and, and I, I, it's interesting to me as I ponder that, the times when I have chosen not to ask a question and the times when I have. I think the difference is I ask a question when I really want to know. When I, when I really want to learn, when I have come to see what this person is talking about is important, not just for the test, but it, it's important to getting a grasp on what I need to understand. And I really want to learn. I really want to understand. In those moments, I'll take a risk to looking stupid and I'll ask the question. But if it's not all that important to me, if I'm not all that interested in it, if it doesn't really make that much difference to me, I let it go. I think we find the disciples in that exact same circumstance in this story we read this morning. Jesus says to them, let's get away. The crowds have been all around them. Let's get away. I have some things I want to say to you. And Jesus pours out his heart to them. He said, I mean, Mark just gives us a little synopsis of what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and he's talking about this. and He's pouring out his heart to them about, here's why I've come. This is what I'm going to do. This is the most important thing in the world to me right now. And Mark says, the disciples look at him and they have no clue what he's talking about. They can't grasp it. And interestingly enough, Mark also tells us that they don't understand and they're afraid to ask him what he means. I think that says to me, their minds are on other things. They're they're thinking about other stuff. Here's Jesus pouring out his heart and his soul about what he's come to do and what he's about to experience. And, and And he's just bearing his soul to them. And they're saying, we've got other things we want to think about. We don't get it, but you know what? I'm not really that interested to ask you about it. What is it that's occupying their attention? What is it that's keeping them from understanding what Jesus is saying? Well, Jesus, I think Jesus understands the fact that they aren't getting it too. And so he asks them a question. It's one of those penetrating questions that, that you sort of back up and go, Who? I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. He asks them a question and he says to them, guys, when we were walking back on the road, what was going on back there? What were you guys talking about? What were you arguing about? And you can almost see them saying, oh, you weren't supposed to hear that. And Jesus says, Mark tells us in verse 34, what they were arguing about. They were arguing about who's the greatest. 
They weren't arguing about, I think Jesus means this. No, I think Jesus means this. They weren't arguing about, you know, I think that what Jesus is telling us is going to go here or Jesus is telling us it's going to go there. They were arguing about who's the greatest. Which one of the 12 of us is most important to Jesus? Which one of the 12 of us is closest to Jesus? Which one of the 12 of us is bigger, greater, more important to the kingdom? I don't know what what the exact words are of the argument. Mark doesn't tell us that. But But I have a feeling it has to do with some stuff that took place a little bit before this. Because before this, the earlier part of the chapter, Jesus takes... Uh, James, John, and Peter up to the mountain and they have this knock-your-socks-off experience of the transfiguration. Jesus' body is transfigured probably into his resurrected body. And not only that, but here stands Moses and Elijah with him. Can you imagine? And Peter says to Jesus, this is awesome. Let's build houses and just stay here. This is just terrific. Why go anywhere else? This is amazing. I mean, can you imagine being in that kind of circumstance where you get to see not only Jesus transfigured, but you get to see Moses and Elijah too? It's an amazing experience. And they got to, they got to be a part of it. And here's the thing that must, the reality that must hit them as, that, as they go away and they start walking down the mountain. Hey guys, there are only three people in the world that got to see that. Us. Don't tell me we're not important to Jesus. Don't tell us that Jesus, we're not Jesus' favorites. And Jesus says to them, don't say anything to anyone. So I don't think they do, at least at the moment. They're not supposed to say anything until he rises from the dead. I don't think they do, but there's still this aura they have to have. You know, they're walking down the road and they're looking at each other like, yeah, that was awesome. And the other guys are going, what? We can't say anything. You've had that experience, right? We wish we could tell you, but we can't. It was just this thing with us and Jesus, and, you know, we can't really tell you right now. You know, I mean, how, you can see it, human nature, right? And, and there's this aura, and, and there is this sense of out of that, they, they have, I think they are wrestling with this mindset that we've had this experience with Jesus. It's too bad you guys can't. I mean, it is a universal thing in the church through the centuries. We all wrestle with it. My experience with Jesus is better than yours. My experience with Jesus is, is deeper than yours. It's too bad you can't have the kind of experience with Jesus that I've had. Then you could be the kind of Christian that I am. I mean, you, when you say it, it sounds arrogant, right? But when you think it, it just feels like you're right. And I think this is, we're wrestling with this. And to be the greatest isn't just I'm the closest to Jesus, but it's I've had the, the deepest, most spiritual experience with Jesus. My, my, my things with Jesus are better than your things. And it creates this atmosphere of contentiousness and argumentative, argumentative nature, which is what's happening there. And so Jesus says, guys, let me help you with this. You're missing the boat. It's not just that they come to the wrong conclusion. It's, it's the wrong discussion to have. Jesus says to them, look, in the kingdom, this kind of, this kind of discussion is, is completely incompatible with the kingdom. In, in my kingdom, there are no discussions about who's the greatest. That's not the point. The discussion you have is, how can we be better servants? 
He says, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to be the servant of everyone, the servant of all. That's what it means to be my disciple. That's the litmus test of being a disciple of Jesus. It's not what you know. It's not how orthodox you are. It's not how right you are, as important as those things are. What really the ultimate litmus test, Jesus says, of being his disciple is that we, are, that we choose to be servants of not just one people, one person, two people, five people, everybody. That's hard. That's the countercultural nature of the kingdom. And, and, and in case they don't get it, he says to them, he calls a little child over, puts a child on his lap, and says, now, here's what the kingdom looks like. You welcome these children, and people like these children, and you've welcomed me. When you begin to embrace people children and people who are like children in the world, you've figured some things out. To welcome is to honor, to respect, to, to, to want, to desire. It, it, Jesus gets in trouble, and, and they use this word later on. The Pharisees say to his disciples, what is wrong with your rabbi? He welcomes, he honors, he respects, he considers important and valuable tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. What's wrong with him? They're upset because good religious people don't do that. And Jesus says, yes, we do. In fact, he says, that is what we do. The argument's not who's the greatest. The concern is, how can we be better servants? How can we serve more? And when he talks, he's not just talking about children. He's talking about all the people in our world, in our lives, who, are, who we would easily ignore, who we would easily push aside, who, who we would easily think are less important, less valuable, less significant than we might be or that other people might be. It's people we can get away with treating like that. Children have no recourse. There's very little children can do. I mean, the reason we can ignore children is because we can. And the reason we can mistreat children is because basically we can. They, they, have, they don't have the resources and, and the ability to, to protect themselves like adults do. And, and so we can do it. In the same way with so many people in our world who are ignored and pushed to the margins and neglected and considered insignificant. It's because we can. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, you can't. You don't want to. You want to serve. You want to welcome them. You want to be a part of their lives. You want them to be a part of your life. You invest yourself in them. You serve. I think there is a way of serving that we often miss. In, in, our, in our Western, uh, you know, fairly affluent culture, we actually, we actually probably find it easier to serve people than we do to let people serve us. I think sometimes it's much more difficult to be the kind of servant who needs people 
as opposed to being the kind of servant who basically has things under control. I think it, I, I like what I'm seeing in the, in the world of, of global missions, some changes that are happening that I'm seeing around the world where we're moving away from the fact that the people in the, in the West who probably have the most money, the most education, the most experience are, are basically saying, we will serve you and, you, and, and we'll take care of you. As opposed to coming into these circumstances and saying, we want to teach you, but we want you to teach us. We believe that, that, that you have things, that the way you do things, and the way you think about things, and the way, the way that you process things are, are important and valuable to us. And we need to learn. This needs to be a, a, a collegial kind of mindset. And I think we've had a hard time coming to that place, but I think we're getting there. I think we're seeing that in that we, not just, we don't just serve by using our power to serve. We serve by coming to others and, and in a spirit of vulnerability, in a spirit of neediness. You know, when we, when we pray for the persecuted church every week, there's a part of me that feels uncomfortable doing that. Not because we shouldn't do it, because we should. And, and the more we do it, the more engaged we become with our brothers and sisters who face such terrible circumstances for their faith. But there's a part of me that is a little bit, feels unworthy to pray for them. What I'm hoping is that they're praying for me, for us. Because when I think about the things that they've gone through and the tests of their faith, I don't know anything about the tests of faith like they do. I mean, their faith has been forged in the fires of pain, in the fires of oppression and persecution, in the fires of war, in the fires of such great difficulty that most of us have a difficult time relating to. What I want to do is to honor them and to say, please teach us how to have that kind of faith. Teach us how to trust God that much. Teach us how to be faithful when the world is squeezing us so tight like it's squeezing you. Help us. When you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't come in power. Jesus came in weakness and vulnerability. And Kenneth Bailey says, Jesus' self-emptying was so total that he actually came needing the help of other people. And I think that's the heart of being servants. That we serve from a spirit of vulnerability instead of a spirit of power. Do we have things that we can use to help people? Yes, but always in the context of, of we want to be We want to be in relationship with you, a healthy relationship. We want to serve you in such a way that when we're done, you don't feel enabled. You feel empowered. You feel valuable. You feel worthy. You begin to understand that how God sees you. That's our calling. I think that's one of the reasons why 
when you get to the end of, of this chapter, we didn't read all of this, but when you get to verse 50, Jesus talks about the ultimate goal is to be, to be people who live in peace with each other. And it makes me think of the Beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those whose presence brings peace, not contentiousness. Blessed are those who who enter into circumstances and into relationships with people with a mindset of of wanting to to serve and to learn and, and to grow and to be taught. Not just in a mindset that says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to convince you. I think so often that's how we interact with the rest of the world. It's often how we interact with each other. I'm right, and I'm going to convince you, and I'm going to, I'm going to get you to the place where you see that I'm right. Here's the thing. We might be right, but the call of the gospel is not for people to think we're right. The call of the gospel is to lead them to Jesus. And we lead people to Jesus not by convincing them we are right. We lead people to Jesus by treating them with love and compassion and respect and honor and service. So that they begin to understand that the kingdom is built on different principles than all the rest of the kingdoms of this world. Because that's how Jesus does it. But he also talks about salt. And he says, you have to have the qualities of salt among yourselves. Jesus talks a lot about salt. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And salt has a variety of usages. You know, we use salt at the, at the table to season food. It enhances the food. Uh, people who make desserts often put salt in it to sort of balance out the, the sweet. Salt is a preservative. Before refrigeration was so common, people would, would pack meat in salt in order to preserve it. Salt tenderizes. I remember as, as a child, you know, my parents would buy uh, not the, you know, afford the best cuts of meat. But my dad would always tenderize the meat and, and put tenderizing salt on it. And, and it made such a big difference because it just breaks down the toughness of the fiber of the meat. But I've discovered recently there's another use for salt that I didn't even realize. I read an article a year or so ago. And it was an article about salt and the properties of salt. And in the article, the author cites the research of a man named Eugene Hedrick, who was for a long time, is now the former, head of the Department of Soils at West Virginia University. He spent his life studying soil and studying the history of soil and studying the way soils were worked by cultures thousands of years ago. And one of the things he says that he discovered is that almost all those cultures recognized the value of salt on their fields. And, and they, would, they would spread salt on their fields. It, for one thing, it would kill the weeds, but it would also nurture the soil. And, and this, this uh, Professor Diedrich says, when he reads the scripture and he reads about what Jesus says about salt, he said, I'm convinced that Jesus is not talking about household salt. He's talking about agricultural salt. Think about that for a second. What he's really saying is that Jesus is saying to us, you are, you are the manure, the fertilizer of the earth. Wait, what? Time out. Stop. My disciples are the manure of the earth. 
Now, I've helped farmers from time to time. I've shoveled manure. All of us have driven around the countryside when farmers are spreading manure. I don't know of anybody who wants to be manure. Now, that's what you call countercultural. And yet Jesus is saying, I want you to be such servants in this world that your presence nurtures the lives of the people around you. That when people, are, when people spend time with you, they see, they see me in you and they see a servant who is willing to engage with them and honor them and respect them and care for them and give of themselves to them. You create this atmosphere of spiritual growth, of love, of peacemaking. This is the call of Christ's disciples. This is the call that God has put on all of our lives. And is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Nobody wants to be like that. Nobody would choose that in their right mind. But Jesus does. And the reason we can do it is because it is the pathway to flourishing. It is the pathway to to a deeper experience with Jesus. We can do it because we know who we are in him. We're children of God. We're created in his image. His breath is in our lungs. We are valuable to Jesus. We have worth. We have significance in Jesus. And I'm convinced the reason we keep arguing about who's the greatest is because we don't really believe we are who Jesus says we are. And if we want to be the kind of disciples that Jesus calls us to be, if we want to be disciples who experience a life of joy and flourishing, then we choose to be servants because we know that our worth and our value is in him. And that makes all the difference in the world. see, this is not something that we're called to now, and then when Jesus reappears, we're going to move on to something else. This is an eternal kingdom principle. This is the nature of the kingdom. It's the nature of the kingdom now, will always be the nature of the kingdom. And when Jesus reappears, we will not stop being servants. We will just be the servants that we now struggle to be. Because the nature of the new heaven and the new earth will be we will serve each other. We'll love each other. We'll care for each other. I mean, that's the dynamic of the kingdom. That's what it's about. That we serve God by serving each other. That's why it's the call on our lives now. Because it's connecting us with the eternal reality of God's kingdom. That's why C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce and says that even people who have been given the opportunity to pack their bags and move from hell to heaven don't want to. Because, as Lewis says, heaven offers nothing that they want. They don't want, they don't want their lives to be, to be devoted to a kingdom of 
selflessness and of servanthood and of, and of valuing people that they'd rather ignore. They want everything to be about self. And that's the call of the gospel. It's to trust God enough to believe that we are who he says we are. That we can let go. We can serve. The real question is not which one of us is the greatest because quite frankly, none of us are. Jesus is. If we can keep Jesus focused as the greatest who loves us enough, he would come and give his life for us. If we begin to understand that, we can be servants. Servants of all who find joy and blessing and flourishing in being who Jesus has created us to be. Father, thank you for wanting more for us than we want for ourselves. Open our our hearts, our minds, our very beings to be your servants. And to serve you in this world because of who we are in you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Thank you.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.